Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. We are uh, glad that you're here this morning. We've been doing a series uh, through the Gospel of John called Encounters, as you can see from that video that we just watched. And at the end of it, it says 11 encounters that changed the world. Today, I think, is the 11th encounter. But let me tell you something. I think we're going to keep going in this series. Is that okay? John says that he wrote that book so that people would believe. We've had people that have been placed on their faith in Jesus. So we've been going through this series. And uh, we might end up doing 20 encounters to change the world, 18 encounters to change the world. There'll be errors in that video probably in the weeks to come. But we are glad that you're here. And uh, we're going to keep encountering Jesus. Our hope when we did this series was that we would have encounters with Jesus Christ that would transform us. And then also to equip our church so that when we move over to our new campus just down the street, um, Lord willing, soon, (laughs) date's coming, day coming. Whenever I start to say it, I always think people start paying attention all of a sudden. Uh, Day coming. When that date happens, we want you to be so transformed by Jesus that you interact with people like Jesus interacted with people. So when people interact with you, they have an encounter with Jesus Christ. And so that's our hope as we equip our body and then also as we share the gospel with people that come on a regular basis. And so we're going to continue today in John chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, you can go and turn there. John chapter 14. I'm going to pray for us and we'll open up the scriptures together. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we get to gather in this room together and worship you. And I think about one of the things that's so encouraging about that is we're connected with believers all around the world that are gathering in your name today. People around this city that are celebrating, that are worshiping you. I think one church in town, Amongo Day, celebrating their seven-year anniversary. Thank you for connecting us with those brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ that are in underground churches in China, that are in, in Madagascar, that are meeting underneath a tree, that are, that are all over the world, meeting in different types of buildings, in different ways, singing different songs, in different languages, all to your glory. Father, we thank you that we have you as our king. And I pray as we open up a passage of scripture in John 14 that has some verses that are familiar with some of us, that you'd speak anew to our hearts that you transform thinking, transform minds, pierce us, change us, challenge us, encourage us. God, speak exactly what you want said in these moments, even different than the first service that we've already had. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, church family, I want to start off by giving you a statement, and you can go ahead and argue with me about it in your mind if you want to, but I believe that as a country, not just as a church, as a country as a whole, Christians, not Christians, people who think they're Christians, all that, that we are in a crisis of contentment. Think about it in your own life. Don't just think about your neighbors and how they need to be more content. Believe that we're in a crisis of contentment. And so today I'm going to build this whole message around one simple question. It says, how much is enough? How much is enough for you? And you think about it in different areas of life. Think about food. Uh, have you ever gone with food before and you eat some food and you're like, well, I could just, just a little bit more. I'll just have a little bit more of that. It's kind of like our mantra as Americans, right? Let's just, have you ever had a Krispy Kreme donut? When they're hot and they're ready to go, they're like cotton candy. They just disappear. That's nothing. That doesn't even count as calories, right? Like it's, it's like you didn't even eat anything. Did you know they have a race here in town where you run half the race? It's like a 5K. Yeah, some of you run that race. You run like, you run downtown. That's not where you met your, did you meet? Yeah, you met your husband there. We'll talk about him in a little while when we get to the passage. It's our, uh, one of our youth pastor's wives. Yeah, they run half the race. You eat a dozen donuts halfway through the race, and then you run the rest of the race. Let me tell you what happens with Krispy Kreme donuts. After about 10 minutes, you do know you ate something. They turn into a rock in your stomach. But when you're eating them, it's like nothing. Just how, much, how many donuts are enough donuts? One of my guilty pleasure foods is barbecued chips. I love some barbecued chips. And I didn't tell the first service this because I had two kids that were in, in the service. But I'm such a hypocrite with my kids when it comes to chips. They'll go to the pantry to get a snack. I'll be like, stop eating chips. That's bad for you. They go to bed. I'm like, I need some chips. Like, I go and get some chips out of the bag. I was eating out of the, uh, the barbecue chip bag this week. You know, I saw on the back of it, it said what a serving size is. Do you have any guesses what a serving size is, the barbecue chips? It's 13 chips, which I thought to myself, how do, how do you know that? They're all different sizes. Why are you judging me anyways? It, it was a vegetable at one time, right? I'm sure that that's a natural barbecue sauce that's on there, whatever. But 13, I have never counted, thir- I've never said, oh, 12, 13, I'm done, If you don't raise your hand, I don't want to judge you. I don't want to judge you. And I will if you raise your hand, so don't do that. How many are enough? How much is enough of whatever your favorite food is? Chocolate, whatever your thing is. How much is enough? What about money? How much is enough money? How much in your retirement account? There's all kinds of, you know, E-Trade or different investment firms that are like, hey, do you have enough money? And they're trying to get this fear. I'm not going to have enough money. I've got to have more money. 
And you can read all kinds of articles. If you Google this, and some of you don't do it right now, but if you Google it on your own, you'll see all kinds of it. If you make this salary, you'll never be happier than if you make this salary, and so then it's all relative at this point. Let me read to you from an article I was checking out this week as I thought about this topic. It says, The latest global statistics show that if one has a roof over his head and a meal on his table, he's richer than 93% of the world's population. If a person wears a pair of shoes... Now, how many of us had to decide which pair of shoes to wear today? All right, don't raise your hand. I did. I'll just tell you that. If a person wears a pair of shoes, they are richer than 75% of the people in the world. In the United States alone, credit card debt averages more than 16000 per household. And we're still discontented. And then they quote this verse. Solomon, the wisest and richest man who ever lived, said, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless, Ecclesiastes 5.10, before you and I ever walk this earth. How much is enough money? How much is enough food? And then we can just start picking stuff, right? How much is enough time? Is there anybody here who just has so much time you don't know what to do with it? Because we've got ministry opportunities for you all through the week. Raise your hand. I will look for that hand. Like, everybody you meet is busy, right? Like, some of you are so busy, you get mad when other people tell you they're busy because you think you're not as busy as me. <laughs> all of our schedules are full, and we all want more time. How much time would be enough? And here's a little secret. We all have the same amount. How much is enough time? How much more do you need? And some of you, entertainment, you think about entertainment, you ever binge watch? You don't have to confess right now in this moment. You get to the end of your favorite episode on Netflix, and you go, just one more. But you said that three episodes ago. And you've got to work in the morning. Like, you just keep going. How much is enough? And we can say it about all kinds. We can just pick different areas of life. How much is enough? But let me propose this to you. What if that longing for more in your soul was actually hardwired into you? That God actually made you that way to long for more? And it's a soul longing. If that's true, can I share a truth with you before we even get to the passage of Scripture today? If that's a soul longing, let me tell you a truth you need to know. You can never meet a spiritual need with more earthly stuff. You can never meet a spiritual need with more earthly stuff. So let me ask you this question. How much is enough? But not just, we could talk about all kinds of different areas of life. Food, sex, entertainment, time, money, all kinds of stuff. But how much is enough for you to be contented with life and equipped to live the life that God has for you? So when I ask you the question today, how much is enough? I mean, how much is enough for you to be content and, and equipped? How much is enough for you to be content with life, regardless of the circumstances, no matter what's happening in your life at this moment, for you to be content? The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, I've learned the secret of contentment. And he says, no matter what the circumstances, how much is enough for you to have that? And then in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, it says that God's prepared works for you to do before you ever existed. He's got a plan for you to be equipped to live on mission for God. How much is enough for you to be equipped and content in this life? If you have your Bibles, we're going to talk about it from John chapter 14. John chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. Last week we were in John chapter 13, a great message preached by our other pastor, Scott, Pastor Scott Mason. If you were here last week, you, you heard him settle the debate. Like people ask the question, what should we call you guys? You're both Pastor Scott, what should we say? He found a Bible verse that says that you're greater if you're younger. <laughs> That's by Jesus. And so he wants to be known as Pastor Scott the Younger. Here's what you can go say to him after the service today, because he's over with our youth, meet with SYU. Say, do you realize that you actually were preaching on a, a passage of Scripture about serving one another? And then you trump Pastor Scott while he wasn't even here? Come on, man. Or maybe that's just what I'll say to him. I don't know, whatever. But he's a, great, he's a huge blessing to have as part of our church and, and ministering to our youth. He preached a great message last week from John chapter 13. If you weren't here, I suggest you go back and listen to it, not just so you can settle this debate about what to call us. Call him Pastor Scott the Younger, apparently, which I don't know what that means. You're supposed to say to me, be careful. <laughs> but in John chapter 13, what happens is that Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. It's the last meal, last supper that they're going to have together. And he gets low. And humbles himself because he knows where he comes. He knows his identity. He knows where he comes from. He knows where he's going. He's able to humble himself. And he washes his disciples' feet. And then it says at the end of that passage, if you heard his sermon that he wrapped up at the end of that passage, he says, this is how the world's going to know that I am the Christ, that, that I've been sent, that this is how they're going to know the gospel, the way you love one another. Isn't that convicting? When you think about how most people outside the church perceive people inside the church, have you ever seen how Christians act when one of us falls in sin? We're known for shooting our own. Do you think, what do you think lost people think when they hear us say, come as you are? Oh, really? Because I see how you treat each other. 
the way that you love one another, they'll know you're my disciples. But you know what else it said in that passage? If you get, go a little bit further in that passage, and it talks about some of the trouble they're going through. Peter, he's the boldest, he's the spokesperson of them, and he's told in verse 38, right before chapter 14, that you're going to deny me three times before it's daytime. And a little bit earlier than that, verse 21, Jesus said, I'm out of here, I'm leaving. Now, think about that. You're those guys, you left everything to follow Jesus, and he says he's leaving? That'll send you in a tailspin. He tells them also that one of you is going to sell me out. You're a traitor. They don't get who it is, even when he makes it really clear. In the past, I don't know how they didn't know, but they didn't know who it was. Even when he makes it really clear which one of them was, they're going, who is it? Which one of this is it? It's not me. Is it you? It's got to be you. You know, all the conversation you can imagine that's happening and all that deal. And then into that, Jesus says this, John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. <laughs> oh, okay. I left my job, my family, my house, everything to come follow you. You just told me you're leaving. I don't worry about it. <laughs> Okay, Jesus, sounds easy to say. Then he says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, some people say that Jesus never called himself God. It's all over the book of John. Here's another place where he's equating himself with God. Believe in God, do the same thing you believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Did, did they? Did they know the way? Because look what Thomas says next. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I not know the way. I'm not going to tell you the way. I am the way. Amen. And not a truth. Not, not, I'm, I, here's my version of truth, and you decide your version. I am the truth. And I am the, the, the life. No one comes to the Father. But what about the guy who, there's not an exception. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. I ask you the question, how much is enough? How much is enough for you? Philip knew his answer. At least he, at least he had the self-awareness to know the answer. Now, he's way off on a bunch of stuff about Jesus and asking this question. But how much is enough for you? For him, it was, show me the Father. What would it be for you? If you're a skeptic, how much would be enough for you to place your faith in Jesus? If you're suffering, you're, you're a troubled heart today, how much would be enough for you to be healed from that suffering, the hurt that's going on in your life? Some of you are scared. You're, you're a Christian. You trusted Jesus maybe years ago, but you're you're kind of you're just on the sideline. Like let's be candid about. It. Some of you are just lazy. Like you're not you're not going to get into the Word. You're not going to get to know Jesus better. You're just kind of waiting. You're kind of in cruise control, planning for your retirement, whatever. You're wasting your life. How much would be enough for you to show that show you that it's worth it to actually go all in for Jesus? How much is enough? And you see what happens here in this passage. You ever notice how life happens in waves? Like, it's never like this one simple thing just takes place in your life. Like we were having some uh, family over to hang out with us a couple weeks ago at our house, and stuff just started breaking. You ever notice that? It's not like one thing breaks. It's like one electronic thing went out. I went out to get the grill started, took the bottom off the grill to clean it off. The bottom of the grill breaks off in my hands. As I'm I went in the house, and this drawer breaks. I went in to get something out of the drawer. I started laughing. I'm like, yeah, of course it did. Like, that's just what happens. Last night we were putting the kids to bed and got an argument with one of the kids. Well, you need to come down here and get your get stuff cleaned up. You made this mess. And then while I'm up there talking to them, I blew something up in the microwave. Like it's just like, yeah, that's what happens. It's just like one thing after another thing. And and you can think about it in those little like frustrating things in life that are just inconveniences. Have you ever thought about your life as a whole? Think about where we are at. Some of you have been part of this church for a couple of years. Do you remember a couple of years ago when we were told we were going to have to leave the movie theater? And then also at the same time, the, the land that we had purchased and given towards and, you know, prayed about was being taken away from us. And, then, and in my own life, I remember at that exact, exact same time, we went through a personal tragedy that we're still dealing with in the court system. It's like any one of those things was enough to be discouraging. But multiple things happened. Now, I told you there's multiple things happening here in the life of the disciples, so you know I'm not making this stuff up. Let me give you the verses. If you go back to chapter 13 and verse 21... They're told one of them's going to be a traitor. They're selling, literally selling Jesus out. Who is it? Which one of us is it? Okay, that's discouraging. But one of these guys that we've trusted, he's not really with us. But then Jesus says in verse 33, I'm leaving. <laughs> Wait a minute. I left everything. The I'm telling you what, Matthew's not going back to being a tax collector. 
He's not getting that job back. Left my job to come follow you, Jesus. I didn't realize this was a couple year thing. I'd have just taken like a leave of absence. Like I would, Jesus is like, I'm out. I'm gone. That would send you in a tailspin if you're one of the disciples. Like, All right, we can do this. We'll rally around. Peter's kind of our spokesperson. And then Jesus looks at Peter and goes, this guy over here is yapping about being able to die with me. He's not going to make it through the night. Before the rooster crows three times, he's out. And he says, don't be troubled. Are you kidding me, Jesus? He gives two commands in verse 1. The first one's negative, don't let your heart be troubled. The second one's positive, believe. Believe in God, believe also in me. And so I thought about, as I was thinking about this message, to talk to you, how much is enough? And to give you, to equip you as our, as our church to, to be content in what God's given you, that I'd give you this point. You know how much is enough? Then you need to trade your troubled heart for a trusting heart. Trade your trouble for trust. That's not going to be our first point today, just so you know. Because I started thinking about when I'm troubled, if I hear those words, how does that sound? That sounds pretty trite, doesn't it? And you look at the passage and you see what happens here. So instead, what I want to do is just ask you this question. Is trust enough for a troubled heart? Because I ask you how much is enough. Is trust enough for a troubled heart? And you think about what's happening here. If you go back to the passage in verse 1, it says, let not your heart be troubled. The Greek word for troubled there, which is the, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, the Greek word for troubled there means to be shaken or stirred up. Let not your hearts be troubled. What does heart mean? He's not talking about this organ in our body that pumps blood through our body. He's talking about the center of our emotions, the core of our will. That's what it meant. And so, don't let your heart be troubled, stirred up, shaken to our core. Don't be shaken to your core. Well, what kind of stuff shakes you to your core? So when life goes the opposite of what you expected it to go. Someone you trusted hurts you. It's when you thought you're, you would never get a divorce. And the paperwork gets filed next week, right? And what if somebody comes to you and says, trade your trouble for trust? That's not kind of trite. How about you miscarry baby number six? Trade your trouble for trust. I'd want to smack somebody if they said that to me. What about, did you see the story of the pastor who committed suicide in California? Was it like two weeks ago, I think it was? I don't know all the details of that story. You can go tell his wife and the kids that she has now by herself as a single parent all of a sudden. Just trade your trouble for trust. You'll be good. You'll be fine. Just trade your trouble for trust. Your dreams don't work out in life. Just trade your trouble for trust. You went all in on something and it failed. Trade your trouble for trust. See, that's where the disciples are at. They love Jesus. He's got the words of eternal life. Where else are they going to go? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They've said all of this stuff. They did leave everything to come follow him. In fact, remember when Thomas said in John chapter 11, earlier than where we're at right now, verse 16, let's go die with him. They're ready to go die with him. And Jesus says, I'm leaving. And this guy's going to fail. And one of you is a traitor. And it gets worse than that. In fact, if you go through the other Gospels, you'll see that he also tells them in Luke chapter 22 that Satan's against all of them. In John, it doesn't show it, but in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 26, he doesn't just tell Peter he's going to fail. It says they all said that we're gonna, we'll die with you. And he says, you're all going to fall away. None of you is going to remain faithful. That's discouraging stuff. And you know what Jesus says? Verse 1, trade your trouble for trust. Doesn't that sound trite? How could he say that? Maybe we don't understand what it means to trust. And so let's ask this other question. What does it mean to trust? Because this passage is clearly about trusting, just so you know. In verse 1, he says it twice already. Believe in God, believe also in me. In verse 11, if you jump down, verse 10 says it as well, but verse 11 says it twice. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves, at least believe because of the things I do. The whole book of John is about belief. You see the word repeated over and over again, noun, verb. You see, you see it all over in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. In other words, I could have told you a bunch of stories if we were just doing story time. He says, they're not written in this book, verse 31. But these, the things that I did right now, these are written so that, here's the reason, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So 
The book of John was written so that people would believe. Can I give you an update of what's going on in our church? Over the last three weeks, every Sunday we've had at least one person place their faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Praise God for that. We've had different preachers. Yeah, for, for sure. Praise the Lord. Different preachers, not about a preacher. It's about the word of God going forth, and it was written so that people would believe. And you know what happened in the, that moment when somebody placed their faith in Jesus Christ? They went from being lost to being found. From being in darkness to being in light. From being without hope and without God. You had no shot. There's nothing you did. It wasn't because you cleaned yourself up and showed up at church. God grabbed a hold of your heart, pulled you into his kingdom. You're reconciled to him. A miracle took place. God's at work in our church. Every time somebody places their faith in Jesus, it crosses that line of belief. It's an amazing miracle. Now, if you're one of those people, let me just say to you, we want to help you grow. We've sent you some information already. I'd love to meet you after the service. The next step for you is to get baptized. We can talk about what that means and time frame, when you're ready, all that kind of stuff. But can I remind you of something? The disciples have already believed like that. You have the words of eternal life. They're, they're, they're in. They're ready to die with Jesus. But he's telling them, he wants them to, Trust him. How do I know he means trust? And it says the word believe here. What do you mean trust? It's actually the Greek word pisteo. And it means personal, relational trust. So a lot of times when we say believe, we think about knowing the right stuff, like knowing the right information. Let me tell you something. The Bible says in James chapter 2 and verse 19, even demons believe the right stuff about Jesus. And they are fearful. The demons believe and they shudder. We can put a version of that up on James chapter 2 verse 19 on the screen. In fact, I'll challenge you this in your own personal study. Read the New Testament. Read the Gospels. And who has the best theology in all of the Gospels? It's demons. Is that not ironic? You're the holy one of God. No one else knows who Jesus is. You're the holy one of God. If you come to destroy us, like, they get it. They know who Jesus is. Are they going to be in heaven someday? But some of us, we act like getting into heaven is based on knowing the right information. And there's some evangelism training that's kind of set some people up for that, and I understand why they did it. It was really to equip believers. It wasn't about lost people knowing this information this way, but some of us act like, like, as long as when I die, I got a number two pencil, and I can pass the exam. I'm good. Like, you think that God's going to ask you this question, why should I let you into heaven? And as long as you know, as long as you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and sin, and so you know, some people aren't even used to hearing the word sin. Sin is when you choose something over God. That's sin. That Jesus paid for your sin on the cross, you think if you know that information, you're going to be, the demons know that information. Why do you think you're going to be better off than them? See, the word here for believe actually means to trust. It's relational trust. What does that look like? Well, think about relationships. Think about with my wife and I, when we got married, we, we pledged to one another in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, for richer, poor, forsaking all others. Okay, we can say that and believe that it happened. I was there when it happened. But do you know how you know whether or not I trust my wife? It's how I live. So she said she forsakes all others. Am I paranoid all the time? She's going to find a better guy out there. There are better guys out there. Don't tell her, please. But if I live like I'm paranoid, then I don't trust her. If I live paranoid all the time. If when I start getting sick, I'm like, hey, it's okay. You can take off now. Then I don't trust her. If I'm going to be by her side, and she's going to be by my side, no matter what's going on, that flushes out in the way that we trust you. A simple explanation would be like, if I, if I say, I'm going to meet you for lunch, honey, and then I show up at the time we say we're going to be there. I believe she's going to be there. It shows the way I live my life shows whether I trust. So you put in a friendship relationship. You can say you trust your friend, but you wouldn't let him drive your car, would you? <laughs> you know which friend I'm talking about. <laughs> you don't want him around your kids. Wouldn't let him know any of your passwords. You don't trust them. You can say you trust, but how you live, what you do, shows whether or not you actually trust what Jesus is talking about here, he says, hey, you've got this trouble. Trust in, and the key is what are you trusting in? Trust in me. Trust, believe in God. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I am God, she says in verse 6. And so let me ask you this question. This is a big question. What are you trusting in? Because I could say to you, trade your trouble for trust. And everybody would be able to answer that question. I, I do. Because we all naturally do that. We all trust in something, especially when we're in troubled times. The question is, what is it? And the reality is that many of us think because we're in church, the answer is Jesus. So, okay, so let's just imagine for a moment it's Tuesday night and you the stresses of life are coming in or Friday night and you're not even thinking about going to church yet. What are you trusting in? Is it your performance? Because a lot of people that go to church, it's about showing, I'm going to show God how much I love him. And you're going to do something. Maybe you're trying to prove something to your dad, prove something to your spouse, prove something to some friend. You don't even know who you're trying to prove stuff to, but you're always trying to accomplish stuff. 
then that's not the gospel, just so you know. That's not trusting in Jesus. That's based on your performance. And some of you, it's escape. Like, I'm just, it's just, life is hard. Whatever things have gone on, whatever my trouble is, I want to numb the pain. And maybe that's food. Maybe it's workaholism. Maybe it's exercise. Maybe it's whatever, pills, alcohol, whatever it is. Maybe it's all kinds of things, things that seem good, ministry, things that people know aren't good, drugs. Like, you get all kinds of stuff. But you're trying to escape. You're trying to numb the pain in your life. And that's not, that's not trusting Jesus. What is, what is it you do trust? Control, do you grasp for control? When things seem out of control, I'm going to control the things I can. That's eating disorders come from. You know, people obsessive, you know, over you know, video games, whatever, all kinds of stuff. I'm gonna control, I can control that. I can't control these other things. That's not trusting Jesus. And, and go to the passage, and why are these guys troubled? Remember why they're troubled? It's because Jesus is leaving. So let me ask you this question. Would that trouble your heart if Jesus were to leave your life right now? Because some of us, if we're honest, we don't really need Jesus that much right now. We're banking on him being there when we die. But if he left today, most of us wouldn't notice because we're not dependent upon him daily. That's trust. That's what trust is. And so Jesus says, trade your trouble for trust, but he doesn't make it this trite, simple statement because he goes on and he tells us why. Because you could ask the question, why would I trust you? It's because you're Jesus, because you walk on water, because you fed some guys? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he gives us the first reason. The first reason is this, because I have a plan. I have a plan for you. Verse 2, he shows us the plan, and he goes eternal on it. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? I've got a plan for your life. And it goes far beyond what you're experiencing in this current moment. But what you're experiencing in this current moment is necessary for the plan that I have for your life. And so some of us, we've heard verses before, like Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for hope and a future. And then maybe you've read like a blog or something, or some pastors told you, hey, that verse doesn't even apply to you. It's an Old Testament prophet. Here's the context of what's going on. And you leave and you feel like you're smarter than all the rest of the Christians. But you know what else happens? It builds an insecurity. So does God have a plan for me? Is it a good plan? Does, is it a f- Here's what you got. You got John chapter 14, verse 2. He's saying right here, I got a plan for you. It's a good plan, but remember what they're going through. They're going through terrible times. Their hearts are troubled right now. He's telling them, why, here's why you can trust me, because I've got this good plan for your life. Think about when some of you are in trouble right now, but when you're in a troubled time, if you're not there right now, you'll be there eventually. You can probably think back to one that you've experienced. One of the difficult things that's going on in my family's life right now, many of you know, is that my father-in-law passed away this year. And the reason why I wasn't here last week is because we were away and we were doing some stuff with extended family all together, doing some ceremonies to mourn his loss. And different people are at different places and, and grieving that. And one of the people in my family was really struggling. And they were lots of tears. And I went to them while we were talking and I said to, to this person, so have you bartered with God yet? You know what bartering with God is, right? Like if you do this, I'll do this. And usually we say something we know God wants us to do in our lives already. And what we're telling him is what we want him to do in our lives. And so it's kind of like, if you'll compromise a little bit, God, I'll compromise a little bit, okay? I'll do your thing if you'll do my thing. And really what we're saying we don't realize it is, I've got a better plan than you, God. You need to come my way a little bit here. You need to improve your plan a little bit. But it's normal. We all do that. We see it in the Bible. People do it and experience it all the time. So the person said, yeah, I've done that. So that's normal. I said, where are you at right now? He said, I'm angry. I'm angry this happened. There's some other good news for you, some of you, the rest of you that are angry. We read a whole, there's a whole book in the Bible. We read a verse earlier from the book of Lamentations. There's a whole book in the Bible about that. The psalmist gets angry at God. You can read it. It's in the Bible. God can handle that. But you know the danger is if you stay angry? If you stay angry, you fight against God. And so I, I told this person, I, I said, you know, it's okay that you're angry, but Lord willing, where you're going to get is a place where you accept what's happened. And you even get to the place where you don't like it. You don't like what's happened. I'm not saying that. But you trust God in it. That God has a plan, that God's plan is always best. And you might not like his plan, but you've got to trust that his plan is the best plan. If not, if you stay angry, you'll try to fight against God's plan. And you see it. And you, Jesus says this stuff to the disciples right here. And Peter's one of the disciples here. He says, you know, one of you is a traitor. I'm leaving this place. You're going to deny me. You get to John chapter 18. You know what happens in John chapter 18? Everything Jesus said. Isn't it funny how the Bible works like that? Whenever Jesus says something's going to happen, it happens. 
If you haven't read John chapter 18, what takes place is that Judas, we find out, is the one who's going to betray him. He comes and he gives Jesus a kiss, and he brings an army with him, and then Peter steps in. Have you read John chapter? If you like action movies, you should read the Bible. You know what happens in John chapter 18? That Peter comes in, and he goes, Jackie Chan. Have you, seen, have you read John 18? He comes in and goes, ninja moves, and cuts some dude's ear off. Now think about that for a second. Like, John didn't write down all the details of what happened in every encounter, so we've got to use a little bit of sanctified imagination. But if you give me a sword and you tell me to fight for Jesus and I go to hit some guy in the head, I'm whacking the dude in the head. Like, I'm not cutting his ear off. You've got to have some skills, some precision to cut somebody's ear off. So I don't know if Peter was doing ninja, like he'd work his fisherman thing and he'd go to, like, karate classes over here at Harris Teeter afterward. I don't know. But he had some nunchuck skills, some sword skills. He jumps in. I imagine that Peter came in and he's like, you're not taking Jesus. It was like Chuck Norris, like a movie, like the lip dub was happening. And they were in there. And he cuts this guy's ear off. And he's fight- you know what he's doing? He's fighting against, Jesus already told him, I'm leaving. He already said this guy, everything's happening the way Jesus said. He's fighting against God's plan. Now think for a second. Think with me for a second. What if Peter had been successful? Because what happens in the story, you can read. You've got to read all the different gospel accounts to put the pieces together. Luke chapter, you know what happens in Luke in that story? That Jesus puts the guy's ear back on. I try to imagine what that must have been like. Like he's blood everywhere. Jesus is like, you know, cut it out, Peter. Pun intended. You know, he puts his ear back on. <laughs> got the miracle ear on there. That guy's just going, what's happening? Like, I don't know. He's kind of confused. And he said, you, you, you know what Jesus says in John's, John's account? He says, put your sword back in its sheath. I'm going to do God's will. You know what Jesus is doing? He's leading by example. Jesus says in the garden, if there's any other way, it's not like he's like, the cross is going to be awesome. You guys should show up. No, he's, he doesn't want to go to the cross. Like, that's going to be hard stuff, but he trusts the Father. And you know what it says in John chapter 13? That Jesus' heart was troubled. But he's doing the thing that he's commanding the disciples to do. But what if, what if, Peter had kept fighting, and he went, you know, Jason Bourne, Chuck Norris, Bruce Lee, pick your guy. And he fought off this whole army, and they didn't arrest Jesus. And then Jesus didn't get crucified. Do you know what would happen? Peter would have thought that was an awesome plan for his life, because he'd have never been martyred for preaching about the resurrection, because the resurrection wouldn't have happened. He'd have never been terrified, hiding in a room, wondering if they were coming to kill him while Jesus was dead for three days, when they're hiding in the room, and then Jesus shows up, and that messes him up too, by the way. That wouldn't have happened. None of the fear, none of the pain, none of the loss. They would have just kept living with Jesus. Jesus could have kept being a powerful teacher, miraculous leader, like it had been awesome for Peter's life in the short term. But think about the eternal perspective of that. No cross? Okay, do you know what happens if there's no cross? There's no forgiveness of sins. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death, the separation from God. The gift of God is eternal life. That happens through what Jesus did on the cross. For all of sin. So that means all of us are going to have the wrath of God coming against us. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that, that while we were yet sinners, God's enemies, Christ died for us. What if he didn't die for us? We'd still be his enemies. We'd still be dead in our trespasses and sins. We'd still be separated from God. God's wrath would come against us at death. So there'd be no forgiveness of sins. There'd be no salvation. You're, you're right. There'd be, there'd be no church. We wouldn't be meeting today. Because that all happens after Peter, Peter preaches, after denying Jesus. After Peter preaches that you killed the Christ and he's risen from the dead and you've got to place your trust in him. Do you think Peter learned something through that? See, one of the things I love about God's plan, God's got a plan through the whole mess, by the way. And some of you need to hear this because some of you are rebelling against God and nobody in this room knows it, just so you know. Some of you had an affair and you don't want anybody to find out. God knows. Some of you are having an affair and you don't think you're ever going to get caught. God knows. Some of you are stealing money. God knows. Some of you act like you love God and you know you don't love God. God knows. You should read the account in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus speaks to Peter about his denial there. Right before he tells Peter he's going to deny him three times, you know what he says? He shares something that doesn't get shared in John. He says, Satan's asked to sift you, Peter, but I've prayed for you. Do you know the next word is so crucial? He says, when you turn back. Now, if you're Peter in that moment, you go, when I turn back, I'm not turning away. Like, you can't even hear this in this moment, but you look back on it, you go, when? Do you know what that means? That means God has a plan for you even in your rebellion. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you are in it. You need to hear those words. God's got a plan. You think you're running. You think you're going to get away. You think 
He's got a plan for you not only in your rebellion, but when you turn back to him, he's going to use you still. Some of you think, God can't use me, especially if other people knew what I did. No. God knew all that. When, not if, when you turn back, Peter, strengthen your brothers. They need you. When you turn back, strengthen your brothers. God's got a plan. And you're in the midst of trouble right now, like the disciples were. Let me tell you what else the Bible teaches us. There, you're gonna, when you come to the place where you experience the glory of God, you're not even going to think about Because a lot of us, we go like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. And you're mad about some injustice. I get it. I do, I get it. I don't think you're going to think about that at all. Read John chapter 16. We're going to get there in this series. John chapter 16, he tell, he gives, Jesus gives this analogy about a woman giving birth. Now think about that. We had somebody give birth yesterday in our church. It's awesome whenever that happens. I, I almost want to ask how many of you in here have given birth more than once. Remember, they didn't have any anesthesia, okay? It says it's, it's trouble when a woman gives birth, he says. Yeah, no kidding. I'm not going to testify. I'm not going to claim it. Please, women, don't punch me in the face in the lobby. But isn't it a miracle that any woman does it more than once? He says, once they have the baby, they forget the pain because of the joy of the baby. Do you know what God does in his plan with our mess? Do you think that Mary and Martha, after Lazarus was raised from the dead, were still angry at Jesus? If you had only been here, now they're rejoicing they got their brother back. So what Jesus does is he, ta- he makes it all make sense at the end. And so what you have to do is in it is trust him. I don't say you have to like it, but you trust him. Trust Trade your trouble for trust, because i got a plan. But it gets better than that. It's not just a plan. Go back to verse 2. It's a personal plan. Did you notice that? Verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have, I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place? Verse doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't just go, I'm preparing. Heaven's going to be awesome. You should come. <laughs> he says, I prepare a place. It's a personal place for you. I'm preparing a place for you. Now think about when my wife and I had kids. You know, thinking about that couple in our church that had a baby yesterday, and I rejoice when I see that online. It's awesome. Get excited for them, but then it takes me back. And I was thinking this week about our second child. I remember our second child we had here in North Carolina, um, just getting the church going. I remember another pastor in town called me up, was asking me about it, and we were at this hospital in Cary. They put us in a room that was underneath a stairway. It was like an old janitor's closet, and they like needed an extra room. They put us in there. It was a terrible experience when we were in there. But we had this baby. We were so excited about having this baby. And every child that we had, we've got four girls, for those of you who don't know, Every one of them, we knew their name before they got here. We prepared for them. It didn't matter if we were living in an apartment, in a house. We had a room that was ready for them. We had things engraved with their name on it. It was very personal how we prepared for the children. When we were leaving the hospital, I was excited to get out of that hospital when we were leaving. We stayed there a little bit longer than we thought we were going to. I didn't go over to the nursery, and they come out and go, you know what, we're having a BOGO today. So your insurance only paid for one baby, but you can, we got these twins. Why don't you take these twins? And I'm like, that's a great deal. Sounds good. I didn't come just to get like any baby. I wanted my baby. We prepared for that baby. It's my child. Can I tell you what the gospel of John says? In John chapter one, this book that's all, it was written so you'd believe. It's all about belief to strengthen your trust. Even those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus already, he's talking to guys who've already done that. He wants to strengthen your belief. Do you know what he says in John chapter 1? In John chapter 1, verses 11, 12, 13, he says this. But to all, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who trusted him, he gave the right to become children of God. You're his child because of your trust. Who were born, not of blood, you're not born a Christian, nor of the will, of, not because you desired, I want better for my life, so I'm going to improve it and do this nor the will of man, but God. God did a work in your heart. You were lost, you were, found. You were without hope, and he brought you to himself. And it's a personal plan, you're his child. He's got a personal plan for each one of you. If you know him as your savior, he's preparing a place for you. Not just a place, for you. And it's all, all, this, all the pain here, trust him. He's working it out for your good, for his glory. He's got a plan, it's bigger than your plan. And if he did things your way, if he conceded to your negotiation tactics, it'd be a mess. Do you trust him? Which brings us to the next question, which is really the most important question I'll ask you today. Is he enough? Is Jesus enough? Because the trust isn't just about trading your trust, your trouble for trust. 
It's based on what you trust in. And if that source of trust is going to be Jesus, you have to ask yourself the question, is Jesus enough? And that's really what Philip's asking in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. That'll be enough. If you just show us the Father. Now, here's the thing. I love Philip. Philip's such a dork, but I love him. Like, if you read through the, all the gospel accounts with Philip, the first time you see Philip, he's taking Nathaniel to Jesus. He's like, well, that is a good Christian boy right there. Just leading people to Jesus. That's awesome. Philip's a nice guy. He's a good example. But then you see him, and the next time you see him is the feeding of the 5,000. I don't know if you've read the details of that story, but a lot of times people are just like, Jesus fed 5,000 people. You know what that story actually says? Jesus looks at his disciples and says, feed these people. And they're the ones who actually hand out all the food, by the way. Jesus is the one who does the work. It's the same way it works in our life, just so you know. Jesus is the one that's actually going to empower us to do the things he commands us to do. But he looks at Philip and he says, how much would it cost to feed all these people? And you know what Philip does? Philip's like, <laughs> let me pull out my abacus here. I'm going to figure it out. He says, it's 200 denarii, Jesus. And I want to be like, Philip, this man pays his taxes out of a fish's mouth. Are you kidding me? Like his ATM is an ocean. Why are you, well, get your abacus out of here. And then Andrew just comes walking up. He's like, there's this kid. I don't know. Would you just do something? Philip, the last time we saw him, was going, we don't have enough. And then here he's going, well, I know what will be enough. I know, Jesus, this will, if you just, and I don't know if he's thinking of Moses in Exodus 33 where he gets a glimpse of God's glory. I don't know if he's thinking of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where he saw the Lord. But he says, you just show me the Father and that will be enough for me. Which at least, at least he knows where his heart is at. And so I ask you this question. If you filled in that blank, how would you fill in that blank? Jesus, if you would just blank, that would be enough. If you would just, and if you're a skeptic, how much information do you need? What do you need to see to believe? Jesus, if you would just, that would be enough. Or maybe you're scared. Maybe you're one of those Christians that's like, I'm in, I'm in the kingdom, and but I'm just, I'm going to waste my life. You don't say that, but that's how you live. I'm just going to waste my life just being a nice, moral person. I'm not going to do anything for God. I'm not going to try anything by faith. I'm just too scared. How much, what would it be for you to have courage? Jesus, if you would just, then I would, I'd go all in. Jesus, I would, maybe it's with your time, maybe it's with your money, maybe it's with your talents, with something that you're holding back. I'm gonna, if Jesus, if you would just give me this, if you just show me this, if you just, some of you are suffering. Your health is bad. You've been diagnosed with something. Your marriage is bad. Something bad's happened in there. Finances are bad. You've lost a loved one. Jesus, if you would just bring them back, heal this disease, do this thing, then I would, how much, what do you need? What would you fill in that blank with? And look what Jesus says to him. Because I think it's what he'd say to us. Verses 9 through 11. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Some of the older translations of the NIV actually insert this word that's not in the Greek, but it gets the idea across. You don't really know me. Do you not really know me, Philip? Here in the ESV it says, if I've been with you so long, you don't even know who I am. Of course he's face to face with Jesus. He believes Jesus is there. He's placed his faith in Jesus. He's leading other people to Jesus. He's going, do you know me? Do you really know him? Do you realize who Jesus actually is? Then he says, whoever sees me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? John chapter 1, verse 18, no one's seen God. If you want to see what God's like, look at Jesus. Everything about Jesus' life has been to reveal the Father. All of his words, all of his works are to reveal the Father. So it's like, it's like he's looking at Philip and going, do you even know me? Like I'll say, I've said that to my wife before. We've been married for 18 years, uh, dated for five years before that. And sometimes something will come up and I'll be like, how did you not know? Like, like if she didn't know I like barbecue chips, I'd be like, do you even know me, girl? Come on. That's what Jesus is saying. It's like, Philip, have you been paying attention to what's been happening for the last three years? Do you not know who I am? And look at what he says in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, do, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. The words and the works. Believe in me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else at least believe this, Believe on account of the works themselves. You see, only God could do the things that I've been doing. At least believe on that. Come on, Philip, don't you know who I am? The Father's in me. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying to Philip, Philip, you're saying this would be enough. You already have this because you have me. 
So the real question, am I enough? Am I enough for you, Philip? Do you realize who I am? And let me ask you this question, however you'd answer that question. Jesus, if you would just, that would be enough. Do you think Jesus would say back to you, you already have me. Is that not enough? And what he's pointing back to here when he says this is what he said back in verse 6, where he's claimed to be God. So if I go and prepare a place for you, verse 3, I'll come again and take you to myself where I am. You may be also, you know the way. Thomas says, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. What are you talking about? Verse 6, I am the way and the truth. Let me remind you of something here, Christians. This is not in some public forum so that you can teach all the pluralists that there's only one way to get to heaven. This isn't a private meeting with hurting people. He's comforting their hearts. He says, I am the way. I am not the best version of truth you can find, the truth. I am, you want life, you want abundant life. I am the life. No one, no one's going to experience that apart from me. No one's going to get to the Father apart from me. No one's going to, I am these things. Do you realize who he is? Do you realize who Jesus is? I was talking with a friend the other day that is a, a pluralist, is a universalist, and we were chatting through Jesus' stuff and talking about whether he was going to go to heaven or not. And, and as we were talking about that, he said to me, he said, I just think all religions are the same. They all teach you you're supposed to you know, love people the way that God loves people and just all do unto others they do to you, which is in the Bible, by the way. But he said, then you, Islam's good and Buddhism's good. And like, if you're a Hindu, you're going to get there. Like Everybody's going to get there. There's just lots of different ways. And I said, okay, well, let me just give you an analogy. I said, what if you were going to run a race? And it was a 10K, 6.2 miles. And you start at the starting line, and you take off. And then there's the first turn. The first turn, everybody goes right, because that's the way the course goes. But you turned left. And you kept running, but you weren't on the course. And you didn't come to the finish line, but you ran 6.2 miles, and you were sincere. And you ran your best time you've ever run. Are they going to come running up to you at the end of the time of your running and give you a medal? He goes, well, no, of course not. He goes, why do you think God's going to do that? So God doesn't work like that, is what he told me. I was like, okay, so you've got God figured out. Why don't you tell me how that works? And he said, God's loving. Let me ask you this question. If God is loving, and there are a lot of ways to get to heaven, what's this whole deal about murdering your son? That's just so there's another way? That doesn't sound loving to me. That sounds very cruel. Why when Jesus prays in the garden, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. There's not another way. And it's not like it's just this verse in the Bible, just so you know. There's one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.15. There's no other name by which men shall be saved. Peter preaches that in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way. There's only one way. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you placed your trust in him. You have him. Do you know what else he says? There's all these I am statements in the book of John. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the living. No, if you, you'll never thirst again. He's not saying you don't need any more water. What's he saying when he says, I am living water? You'll never thirst again. I am the bread of life. Is it possible that Jesus is saying, I am actually your source of satisfaction? That Jesus is saying, I am enough. So let me ask you. Let me ask you the question we started with. How much is enough? For you to be content, is Jesus enough? What about for you to live on mission? We don't have time to go to verse 12. Verse 12 is awesome. You should read your Bible. We don't have time to get into it, but... Do you know what verse 12 says? Verse 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, trusts in me, will also do the works that I do. <laughs> How much, what, what were the qualifications again? Back up, before we even talk about what those works are. What were the qualifications? You had to know Greek, right? Well, sometimes pastors act like only the pastor is the one that, that's going to do the works of God, that God's going to use. Is that, does it say something like that? It says, whoever, whoever believes in me, We'll do the works that I do. What do you need? What do you need to be equipped to live on mission for God? Faith. What classes did the woman at the well take before she led a whole city to Jesus? She trusted Jesus, and then God used her to bring revival amongst all of her people. She was willing. She was willing. Do you know what you need? You need Jesus. You need trust, faith, in Jesus. Is that enough, though? Do you believe that's enough? Because you can argue with me about it in your heart and in your head. I'm just, I'm going to tell you what God says about it. He says, I am enough. I am your source of satisfaction. So the question is, will you trust him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking your truth to us through your word. Thank you for giving us the Bible, that we don't just get together like a rotary club or some social groups, a fraternity, and hang out. 
just like each other, that you've guided us, that you are our king, that we can trust you, that we should trust in you and not lean on our own understanding, that we should cast our cares upon you because you care for us. Father, I pray for those that are in this audience that are, that are like the person I mentioned earlier, that are trusting in their performance. Eventually, they're going to get worn out like Peter. He's going to get worn out trying to do it in his own strength. Like the Pharisees get worn out trying to do it in their own strength. Like the people who have been worn out living in sin. And then you say, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul. Some of you need to come to Jesus right now for rest for your soul. Some of you, like the people who have done over the last several weeks in our church, need to place your faith in Jesus to be your Savior. Maybe today's the, the first time it's really hit you that you are a sinner, that you are separated from God, that you're not just born a Christian. You don't become a Christian by hanging out at church. That you've got to place your faith, your trust, personal, relational trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you at the cross when he took the penalty of sin. Or else you can pay for it for eternity, separated from God forever. Or you can place your faith, your trust in what Jesus did for you. And stop trusting in your own performance. Stop trusting in good works. Stop trusting in cleaning up your act and come to Jesus really the way that you are with your sin and confess your sin to him and ask for forgiveness. And if you want to do that, just pray this prayer with me. Pray these words. Father God, right now, I, I believe I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. And I put your son Jesus on the cross. And I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And right now, I want to receive his forgiveness. I want to ask Jesus to be my savior. I surrender my life to you. Father, I pray for those that have done that before, not in this moment, but already done it in the past, but you want to strengthen their trust. Maybe they're in troubled times. Would you do a supernatural work right now in their hearts, an amazing transaction where they can trade their troubled heart for a trusting heart, that they might not like what you're doing. They come to the realization, not only can they not change it and control it, but they actually trust you that you're working in it. Even in stuff that makes no sense to us in the moment, that seems painful, that's difficult, you're working out your plan, and it's a good plan, and it's a plan for our future, and it's a plan that you've got an amazing plan. Not only are you preparing a place for us, but you've got a plan for us to walk in the good works that you prepared before all of eternity for us to walk into. God, will you give them the boldness, the courage to walk in that? God, I pray for our friends here that have been just lazy Christians. I don't really engage. Engage with you serving you, looking for opportunities to tell people about you, looking for opportunities to serve other people in your name, looking for ways they can love their church body so that the world would know that we're your disciples. God, help us to be gracious to one another, to give the grace that we've been given, to forgive the way that we've been forgiven, to love the way that you've loved, to serve the way that you've served. God, help us to have the, the desire to even do that. Give us desire. Help us to trust you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.